I bring you greetings, as Micah said. I am Adam Osier, pastor, Adam Osier, dean of the Free Lutheran Bible College. Uh, from the sunny shores, we bring you greetings. The sunny shores of Medicine Lake, which actually probably isn't all that sunny. It probably looks a lot like this right now. But I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to bring his word to you here today in, in uh, the absence of, of Pastor Franz. And uh, I, I'm excited to be here on this day in particular. I, as a pastor, one of my favorite Sundays was Reformation Sunday. And the reason that Reformation Sunday was one of my favorite Sundays to preach was because it addressed a topic and an issue and a situation in, in, um, in, in the history of the Christian church that is very personal to me. Uh, today, we, we look at, at this question. And the big question that we have to ask ourselves in the midst of this situation, in the midst of, of Reformation Sunday, is where do I find a place for my sins to go? Where do I find a place for my sins to go? 503 years ago next Saturday, an ornery monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a door at Wittenberg, which by itself was not really that concerning. But there was a, uh, to, to use this, this uh, I guess it would be a cliche, he had a burr under his saddle. He had an issue going on. Something was rubbing him the wrong way. He knew that he needed to find a place for his sins to go, and he had some frustrations with his church. Okay, the Catholic Church at that time was taking uh, the taking that that question of where do my sins go and say, oh, oh, just give us some money, we'll take care of it. In the sale of indulgences, people would give money, often large sums of money, to give, uh, get their loved ones out of purgatory, to get those sins remitted and brought into heaven, and that is a problem, isn't it? But Martin Luther wasn't just wasn't just irked by the sale of indulgences. Martin Luther was a man who was asking himself the question, where should my sins go? Where do my sins go? And that is a big question. That is a, a, a massive question that we have to ask ourselves. The question has a theological title. We call it justification. Where do I find my justification? See, Luther was, was seeing this in the church with indulgences. He was seeing it in trying to, to uh, whip himself even at times and, and do to strict obedience as a monk, go to confession, whip himself with cords, punish himself for his own sin. But he was missing the justification that was offered by Christ alone. In our text today, which I'm going to read here for you, uh, Luther, uh, we will see, got his, his ornery monk playbook from an ornery apostle. Uh, Paul had preached to the Galatians. He had, had come to them. They knew the gospel. He had clearly portrayed it, he says. He had given that good news of where their sins should go to these Galatian people. And boy, was he ornery when they were backing out of that. Turning away from that truth. So I'm going to read today from Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. I'm going to read through chapter 3, verse 9. Reading in Jesus' name. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Where do we go with our sin? We look to the gospel. The gospel here is spelled out by Paul. The gospel here is a good proclamation. That's what the word means. It's a declaration of good news. There's only one gospel, Paul says. There isn't a multitude of good news. It's because there is only one, and it's Jesus alone. There are three, three things that no other gospel, except for this gospel, can do. And I want to look at those three things today. The first thing is this. No other gospel can crucify the sinful nature. No other gospel can crucify the sinful nature. Jesus was faced with this question a number of times. How many of you remember the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, right? He comes to Jesus and he's, he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And what did Jesus point to? Jesus brought him to the law. <laughs> he says, well, what does the law say? Do you, well, you know, love God, love neighbor. I'm paraphrasing now, by the way. But, but love God, love neighbor... And you're good. And he goes, oh, good, I've done that since my youth. And Jesus said, ah, eh, eh, uh, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll inherit eternal life. And, and the man turned away because we see that he was putting his confidence not in the, the righteousness that comes from God, but he was putting his confidence in his goods and his wealth. Same thing happens with the lawyer. Uh, you're familiar with the Good Samaritan story, right? Well, that starts out with a lawyer coming to Jesus to put him to the test and say, hey, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the question on him. The lawyer answers exactly right. What do I need to do? I need to obey the law. Love God, love man, I'm good. And, and he says, yeah, love God, love neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, oh, but, uh, and, and yeah, you got to love your neighbor. You're right. And the man said, well, well who is my neighbor. Oh, that law, that, that, <laughs> oh, ah, that's, that's frustrating because I can really like Micah, but I could, I, I don't know who to pick on over here, so I won't pick on anybody here. The Johnsons seem too nice to pick on, so I'm not going to pick on you over there. But, but, you, you know, it's easy to live, and the law, that, that law is a frustrating thing. Jesus, when he talks about righteousness, he points to the law, but not as a means of salvation. I want you to understand what the law can hear and what the law can't do. And the, first of all, the law cannot make you righteous because it cannot atone for sin. The, the law can't make you righteous because it cannot atone for your sin. 
The law cannot help you get to heaven, but the law can show you God's perfect will. Here's the frustrating thing about the law. If I told you today, if I gave you the assurance that I have in my pocket right here an elixir that would cure COVID instantaneously, and you would never get COVID again. It's like the vaccine of vaccines, right? The vaccine that actually works forever and always. And I can 100% guarantee that it works. And I'm right. But, but how excited would you be, right? Wouldn't that make our lives so much easier? Until I told you the cost was $324 billion. Eh, probably not going to happen, right? Most likely isn't going to work. Most likely you can't pay it. So here you have this, this perfect elixir, but you can't afford it. That's the law. You have this perfect law of God, His will, His commands for His people. That is, is very good and right and true. But we just can't make it. Its benefits are out of our reach. The law can only show you God's will and show you your sin. It's like a mirror being held up into your face to show you all of your failings. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. What did he mean by that? He's like, well, through the law, I died to it. When the law came, I saw how much I failed. I've been there, failed that. Right? When the law came to him, he understood that it was his mirror, his sentencer. When the law came alive for Paul, Paul died. Because he recognized his failings. That's the beauty then of verse 20. When I read these verses to you, or this verse again to you, you'll understand why. I have been crucified, Paul says, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When Jesus hung on that cross, my sin hung on that cross. In that form of Christ, my sin was borne by the one who could actually pay for it. It was in Him. He became sin, it says, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That means today that if you are in Christ, when you look to that Savior on the cross, that is the good news, by the way. When we look to Christ crucified for us, we see there all of our sins, past, present, and future, every aspect of your failing on that cross with Jesus. And as you trust in that work to pay for your sin, you have the righteousness of God. There's a place for your sin to go. What do you do with your sin? You put it on the shoulders of Christ on his cross. Now by faith, and faith alone, we live, and Christ lives in us. The crowd in John chapter 6, which, which Micah read for us earlier, was asking what works, plural, must we do to be doing the work of, works of God? And Jesus replied, the work, singular, of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. If any of us could bring any aspect of obedience to the table of righteousness, if any one of us could bring that to the table, then Christ died in vain. That's what verse 21 is teaching us. So I want to ask you today, I want to make this personal to you. Because the gospel is a very personal thing. Do you feel the weight 
of your past sins or your present sins. Maybe sins that you're living in right now. There's nowhere else for you to go with those sins than the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't hide from them. You can't cover them with your own good efforts. You need to go to the cross and see them hanging in the bloodied form of a Savior, the Son of God, who came to pay for them for you. All of them. No other gospel can crucify your sinful nature and declare you right with God. Secondly, no other gospel can supply the Holy Spirit of God. No other gospel can supply the Holy Spirit. Our tendency, and and I think we do this a lot as Christians, I'm guilty of it, I would guess that you are as well. Okay? And it's this. We think, okay, the cross happened. Good, check, got it. Ask Jesus to be my my Lord and Savior, now what? Things are just going to be fine, right? Now I just press on. And, and I go for it. I go for, with all my gusts, all the, all the energy I can muster to come and to live the Christian life on my own. Do we do that? Is anybody guilty of thinking that way? Because I am, okay? Not, nobody is. Nobody's willing to admit it. Not even my, my Bible college friends up here in the front row. The gospel, this Christ alone gospel, is not just for our justification, our declaration of righteousness before God, that instant act of forgiveness, but it's also for our sanctification. That living out the process of the holy life, becoming more and more like Christ. We don't do that alone. The cross, the gospel, is what drives that as well. Paul talks to this. He links faith in Christ's cross to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the, the, the sanctifying and the, and the complete, the, um, the, the work of completion that's being worked in our lives, Paul talks about it here in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Christ has been portrayed to you, publicly portrayed to you as crucified. That word uh, publicly portrayed is, is graphic, vividly portrayed to you. It is there. I, I painted this picture. You see him on the cross. He said, faith in this provides the Spirit. He said, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by trusting the gospel, the good news? Did you get it by by working for it or did you get it by trusting Christ for it? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? Are you coming to completion? It's that whole journey of the Christian life. You started here, are you going to complete it on your own? Or are you going to rest in the Spirit for that too, Paul asks. We need help. We need help. When I was five years old, I, I had a cousin pass away this summer. Unfortunately, and, and as, as I was at his funeral, we were talking to the family as we get together. We're telling stories. And I remembered my cousin. He was babysitting me when I was five years old, and I was just learning to ride my bike. And I, I was on the sidewalk across from my house growing up. And, and he was able to get me started. You know how you hold the seat, you know, and, and, and then the kid starts pedaling, and you're good, and you're good. And I'm like, I'm good now. I remember saying something like that, right? I'm good. And, and he lets me go, and I drive directly into a tree. And my mom and dad come home, and I am a bloodied mess, right? I couldn't do it on my own. That's the Christian life for you. It's Christian life for me. We can't do it on our own. We think we got it, but no, we, we don't got it, right? It's like the Holy Spirit. It's like Paul is saying through the Holy Spirit here, what part of you don't got this don't you understand? 
The gift of the Holy Spirit is uh, the declaration here of what the Christian life is. That's the power. That's the driving force. And that's part of the gospel. The gospel just doesn't get us on the right road. It leads us all the way down that road. And you look at some of the things that that is is promised of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit being poured upon all believers, everyone who trusts Christ, not just the really super good ones. Every believer is given the Spirit of God to live within them, right? In John 16, Christ promises, he says, it's going to bring, the the Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction. Wait a minute, I, I already was saved. I don't need to be convicted anymore, right? You know, the statistics are, out of every ten Christians, ten of them still sin. Can you believe that? Every Christian needs to be reminded to go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Spirit does that. Keller, uh, Tim Keller, one of, a pastor in New York, he is an author, and, and I appreciate some of what he says. I don't appreciate everything. So whenever you quote somebody, I have to, unless I'm quoting Jesus, okay, or, or the Apostle Paul, I, I want to be careful. But he, he makes a very good point when he says this. We must go back again and again to the gospel of Christ crucified so that our hearts are more deeply gripped by the reality of what he did and who we are in him. We need to go back again and again. The Holy Spirit and the the conviction, he brings us there, right? The Holy Spirit also, as we we move on to to John chapter, or move back a little bit, I guess, to John chapter 15, we see this, this promise of Christ being with us in the Holy Spirit. He says, abide in me because apart from me you can't do anything. 1 Corinthians 2, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to interpret Scripture. So if you read Scripture and understand what it says, you can't do that alone. You do that through the Spirit that you received, through the power of the Gospel. In Galatians chapter 5, it says the fruits of the Spirit, somebody who has the Spirit, will be love, joy, peace, patience. You can probably sing it. Who can sing the song with me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of these gifts that we need to love our neighbors who aren't very lovely sometimes, the Holy Spirit does that. 2 Timothy 1, God, it says, gave us a spirit, I think the Holy Spirit here, of power, of love, and of self-control. And then Paul goes on to say this to Timothy his student, his son, if you will, in the faith, he says, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced, now listen, he is able to guard until that day, the end of the road for Paul. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then he tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit, guard the deposit that's entrusted to you too. You can't do this, Timothy. You need the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not this slippery rock on which God sets you and says, boy, you better not fall off. you got to work hard or you're going to slip right off that thing. That's not salvation. Salvation is God's work through the crucified and risen Christ from start to finish, from beginning to completion. The on, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can sustain us because no other gospel can give us the Holy Spirit. Finally, we see also that no other gospel can graft us into the family of God. Uh, Bob was so excited today that I used the word graft in one of my points. I, I don't know if that's an unfamiliar word, but as we are brought in maybe to the family of God, no other gospel can bring us into the family of God. 
If from beginning to end, it's faith in God's promise that saves, that puts you in good company. In this, this context of Galatians, the people that Paul was frustrated with were these individuals that you have to be Jewish. You have to be more Jewish. You, you, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus some Jewish traditions. You need J- Jesus plus circumcision. You need J- Jesus plus obedience to the law. You need to do this or you're not saved, right? We are true family of God here, they said. We are the family of Abraham. We belong to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. If you want to get on the right page, you've got to get in the, with the program. You've got to obey. But Paul says, no, Abraham was never about that. Why was Abraham counted as righteous? Why did Abraham find a place for his sins to go? Where did he find a place for his sins to go? It was faith. Faith in the promise. He looked forward, we looked back. If you want to be a child of Abraham, it's like Paul's asking them, it's not by blood. It's not by blood relation. It's not by behavior, but only by belief. If you want to be part of Abraham's family, if you want to be part of the people of God, faith is what you need. The promise that the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed, here we see in the text, is why he was counted as righteous and why he was blessed. So now all people, whether Jew or Gentile, through faith, if they are trusting in Christ, they are now part of Abraham's family. At the cross of Christ, we are brought in to the family of God's people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Royal priesthood, chosen race, holy nation, people of his possession. That's Old Testament language. But Paul, or Peter, excuse me, is speaking here in this text to who? He's speaking to believers. Verses 6 and 7 of that chapter speak to that. Whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes. Do you question God's love for you today? Do you ever doubt that you're part of his family? Well, where do we look? We look to the promises. If you are in Christ today, if you have seen him on the cross, you can can go no further without the answer to the question, does he love you? I think so. If he's willing to to sit on a cross, or to be nailed more specifically, to a cross on your behalf, and to become sin for you, I think think he loves you. And and I think all of the promises that I I think he's not going to just ditch you there. If he's willing to go that far, all the other blessings of being part of God's family are yours too. Which means when you read the Old Testament, some of you may disagree with me on this, but I think when we are called Abraham's children who who have faith in Christ... I think that whole promise of the Old Testament, the apple, being the apple of God's eye, is one of the promises given to God's people in the Old Testament. That he will, he said, he who touches you touches me. Do not mess with my kids. That's God. For you. For you. And for me here today. The only determining factor on you belonging to the family of God is what you do with the cross of Christ. Are you resting in this gospel, this good news 
alone. If you're questioning whether or not your sins have a place to go today, they do. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Paid for in full, he says, trust me. Trust me. And all the consequences and all the blessings, the Holy Spirit being brought into the family of God, they're yours. They're yours, and they're yours through faith alone. Amen.